You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You'll turn to Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain sees you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come. We come to celebrate by faith what you've accomplished and what you've promised to accomplish in the sending of Jesus. 
So I pray that this morning and tonight we would celebrate rightly and joyfully. We'd celebrate with glory and feasting. We'd celebrate with loud singing. We'd celebrate with hope and a deep, rich confidence in your mercy. In your name we pray, amen. I wonder if you've considered the meaning, perhaps the most obvious meaning of chapter five, verse two of Micah that we just sang about. Um, We're gonna look at it again more closely next week, but I wanna read it to you quickly. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There are a number of implications concerning the birth of Jesus, um, which we would do well over the next few weeks to consider, that we'd do well over the next few hours, not all in one service, I promise, but for the next couple of days for us to consider, um, whether it's when we get up and open presents or it's tonight we gather with candles, we'll hear tonight um, the glories of shepherds and angels and stalls and dragons and all of it. But there's one obvious thing, one, one fundamental implication that lay at the heart of chapter four. Um, the way that these chapters work between chapter four and five is four is laying out a big picture of what God is ultimately accomplishing in chapter five, verse two. In other words, the implication, and it's fitting that we're looking at it today, this morning, before we gather tonight, that the meaning of all that we're going to celebrate and remember tonight, these quaint, cute stories where we have um, kids dress up as sheep and shepherds and angels and do their whole thing, and tonight we'll light candles and we'll retell that story, and maybe you'll watch the Peanuts Christmas special and you'll see them reenact the story, whatever the thing is. We see that story over and over and over again, but have you considered, beyond it simply being a nice, cute story, the glorious implications of that story. Today, they're gonna be spelled out for us in chapter four, but I wanna draw your attention as we begin to what I believe is one of the most obvious and and most uncomfortable realities concerning the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And it is simply this, whatever God is up to in his redemption and his salvation of a people for himself, it involves history. More than that, it involves towns and cities and timelines and nations. Um, We generally like our religions to be nice and sentimental and to kind of elevate us, maybe elevate our spirit um, uh, above the mundane, above the realities of everyday life, uh, beyond and above the realities of dirty houses and having to go to a job every week. Um, But in reality, the the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem as the, the crux, the center point in all of history has for us the implications that what God is up to, whatever redemption and salvation means, it has to do with history. It has to do with um, reality. It has to do with not nice and tidy things. It has to do with these bodies and these nations and these cities. Um, It has to do with things like blood and afterbirth and pain and wars and eggnog and over spicy checks mix. (laughs) 
like God's work of salvation, however it is that we're to define that, it better include bodies. God's work of redemption, however we're to define that, it better include nations and cities and homes and neighborhoods. Because God has gone out of his way to bring salvation to bear, not as pie in the sky someday when you die, <laughs> but as right here, right now, in the flesh. And so we're going to look now at what the implications of that are, what that looks like, kind of fill in that picture a little bit more as we turn to Micah chapter four. But before I turn to Micah chapter four, lest this sermon be entirely too happy, um, we need to revisit the first three chapters of Micah. And what did we see in the first three chapters of Micah? Essentially, in some, everything is bad. Very, very bad. Um, darkness has come. Um, there was this effect through the first three chapters of Micah of building a longing in us for light, for something to get fixed, for something to change, just to remind you of the glorious darkness of the first three chapters of Micah. The people worship idols. That They blend oddly enough that this worship of Yahweh, um, this sort of uh, Christian piety, that they blend that with the worship of Baal, that they're deeply, deeply compromised. Uh, rather than an absolute loyalty to the God who saved them, the God who redeemed them, the God who gave them his law. Instead, they kept the worship of Yahweh sort of intact and then put right alongside it a kind of paganism or secularism in our day in which they take the worship of Yahweh, they take um, uh, certain practices associated with that and they begin to blend it with uh, a sort of modern paganism. And the rulers, the magistrates, the governors, the senators, the judges, the presidents, well, they rule unjustly. They take from the people what they want. They skin them alive. They call it laws or they call it justice or they call it um, climate justice or whatever thing they might happen to call it. Um, but in the end, they're simply serving their own ends, skinning the people they were meant to protect, skinning the people they were meant to serve alive and devouring them. Rather than feeding the people, they eat the people. Well, what about the prophets and the pastors? Well, they preach sentimental drivel. Um, they preach to make people feel good. And they preach to get paid by the powers that be. To keep everyone in line and just tell everyone that everything is fine all the time. The goal of their preaching is simply good feelings. As Micah said in chapter 2, if preachers were to come and proclaim wine and strong drink, those would be the preachers for this sort of people. Preachers simply get the people drunk on a sort of religious sentimentality. Meanwhile, the people are deeply corrupted in their worship. The kings and the magistrates and the judges are deeply corrupted in how they rule. And right alongside them, the priests and the prophets of the day tell everyone everything's great. And so, 
God says he will judge this people. He will send against them Babylon, Assyria, to drag them off into exile and into slavery. They will be destroyed. And so, Merry Christmas. And in the end of all of that darkness, in the midst of all of that darkness, all of that promised judgment, um, we've seen one clue of it in chapter two. But, but I've been promising you that in the midst of all of that judgment, through all of that judgment, God was going to do something marvelous, something glorious, something good. And the reality is, lest you think this is merely some sort of timeline progression, like things go badly and then things go well, it's really important that you see one of the, actually the fundamental messages of Micah is that it is the the instrumentality of that darkness by which God establishes his wisdom and his righteousness. In other words, it's not just, here's a really dark story, but it's okay, we're going to turn the corner and get to something good. Now, now, now at the heart of this is that God is wielding judgment. God is wielding this chaos. God is wielding what appears to be nothing but destruction and wickedness and evil. God is taking that as his instrument, um, those as his ingredients, and baking the cake that we now get to eat in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. You see, the glory of God, the glory of God's wisdom, the glory of God's ways in the world it is not to um, simply evaluate the world, see that it's dark and condemn it. It's not just on the other side of all that darkness to kind of get rid of that stuff and maybe come up with something new. No, God's wisdom, his glory is way, way better than that. It's to take the actual judgments, to take the actual destruction, to take the actual darkness, mix it all together and create light. Right when you, right when you be, be, began to believe that there could be no hope. It's right here that God says in verse 1 of chapter 4, And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established is the highest of the mountains. And, and look how all of this takes place. The, what he draws this glory out of. Look at verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled. Let, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Here's an image of apparent darkness, destruction, judgment. It looks like the end, but it's precisely there that God says, they do not know my thoughts. They don't understand my plan. So, let's look more closely at chapter 4 and what's held out to us. Um, you'll remember in the last, um, uh, the, the, the way that Micah works, it works through three cycles of three. Um, those, uh, that, those three cycles run through warning, judgment or condemnation, and then consolation. We've gone through 
um, one full cycle already. We've gone through the first portion of the second cycle in chapter 3. Um, and now we get an extended um, section of consolation here in 4 and 5. Um, and then a short warning section and then more consolation um, through the rest of Micah. And this consolation, what a consolation. So, so first, whatever God's going to do, which historically is, is spelled out for us in chapter 5 verse 2, the result will be this. Look at verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, now this phrase, latter days, is a technical term. It's used throughout the scriptures. Oh, a wonderful use of your time would be to go and look up everywhere that latter days is used in the entire Bible. Um, it's not just saying, hey, later sometime. Um, it's actually designating, hey, there are the, the present days and then the latter days. There is some shift Every time this phrase is used, it's describing that something dramatic, um, something apocalyptic is taking place historically. So that in the midst and through all of the judgment he just spelled out in chapter 3, God is actually going to give birth to an entire new history. God is actually going to shift the entire trajectory of the, of the whole world through whatever is unfolding in chapter 5 as he as he carries out his judgments, as he carries out this destruction promised in chapters 1, 2, and 3. When the prophets and the priests have grown dumb, when the magistrates and the kings have grown wicked and evil and devourers of the people, when the people themselves have grown blind and corrupt in all the way down, in the midst of all of that, God will change everything. Do you see the marvel of how God always works? He will broke no competitors for his glory. God doesn't wait until we get our politics in order, get the right president in office, get a majority of Christians in Congress, and now he will establish his kingdom. No, he stacks the cards against himself. The magistrates are going to be all wicked, devouring the people. Like, well, oh, maybe, maybe there'll be some sort of grassroots movement of people towards holiness and godliness. No. God says they're going to be corrupt all the way down. Worshiping idols, refusing to worship Yahweh and obey his law and love his commandments and trust his promises. So we say, sure, well, okay, but God will raise up marvelous preachers and prophets and priests. God's going to create an entire movement of pastors in the world. And then when he does that, that will be the spark that brings about the latter days, that brings about the establishment of God's kingdom. That's what God wants to use. Nope. <laughs> they preach wine and strong drink. They come just proclaiming sentimental sap. Telling great stories, making everyone feel nice and good and intellectual. And it's in that moment when everything appears dark and hopeless that God says, it shall come to pass these latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. 
So what, what does that mean? What, what is this new trajectory in history? What is this utter transformation of everything that's now taken place with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? He has an image here of the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established as the highest of the mountains. It's going to be lifted up above all the high places. Um, imagery in the Old Testament um, and, and frankly in the New refers to mountains or high places as these were the places where rule, um, religious rule was established over the people. And so all the nations had high places. Um, Israel actually at this time uh, would worship in Jerusalem, Yahweh, and then they would go to the high places to worship Baal um, and the other false gods. But God says here, above all the mountains, above all the places of rule, above all the places of authority, above all the other religious traditions in all of the world, God will establish his mountain, the mountain of his house, his people, his temple, his church above all of them. The thing that God is doing in the midst of this apparent chaos and darkness and judgment and condemnation is God is birthing something that will utterly transform all of history. And at the heart of it, his description of what that means is that the mountain of the house of the Lord, his People, his rule, his reign will be established over and against and above everything else. This is wild. And not because there was a great preacher, and not because politics got in order, and not because there was some sort of populist grassroots movement demanding that God and his law and his grace be established preeminently over everything else. But because God chose to act in a small backwater town came in flesh and began to rule. So the mountain, the house of the Lord will be established. What will be the effect of that? What is the effect of that? And peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Do you see the geographical irony at the heart of that picture? The mountain is established higher than all the other mountains. And the result is not that the nations flow away from the mountain, but the nations flow to the mountain. The peoples of the earth, the nations of the earth, see the establishment of the throne of God. They see the establishment of his sovereignty, his word above everything else. And then the result is not just that Israel is restored, but rather that all the nations of the earth say, let's go there and learn his ways. Let's go there and learn what this God is like. Let's go there and relearn how everything works in light of his words. And so in the midst of judgment, through the judgment, using the instrument of the judgments we've read about in the first three chapters, 
God establishes a mountain. And to this mountain stream and flow all the nations of the earth. Now, it works slow, but it works. Unless you think this is all theoretical, I want to point out to you that we're in this very, very strange place called Colorado. In a city, very strange city, called Denver. It's only been about 2,000 years since the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. But here we sit in this building surrounded by snow and there are millions of us in every nation on the earth gathering on this morning to worship the triune God in the midst of all of these nations. That's what this is about. And we're only 2,000 years in which I know may feel like a long time to some of you, that's because you're impatient. In the midst of this judgment, through the judgments that came through Assyria and Babylon and Greece, eventually Rome, God has established his mountain, his people, his house. And he is filling the earth with his glory. Now this imagery of um, the law going out from Zion, the word of the Lord going out from Zion, the nations streaming to Zion, it's an image, um, if you remember we talked about Micah and Isaiah um, uh, having some crossover in their ministries. Um, A lot of the prophets from around this time period are using a lot of the same images. Ezekiel is one of them. Ezekiel talks about the reestablishment of this house and that what would begin to happen when that house was established and was raised up as the chief of all mountains um, is that a stream would form flowing from that house, from that mountain, and that stream would flow um, to the nations of the earth. But it, it, it doesn't start in a deluge. It doesn't come like a tsunami. And oftentimes we think about what we expect God to do in the world, let alone what we expect God to do in our lives. And we think of it in terms of a deluge or a light switch. Like um, one day a flood of, of grace and mercy and hope will all just, just come. Um, or that God will just will go to bed one night, things will be dark, and we'll turn on the light, and the next day things are great. That's not how God has promised to work. Um, and said the image in Ezekiel, and there's hints of that, not just hints, there's echoes of that exact same image here in Micah chapter 4, is that it begins as a trickle. In fact, um, you go to Ezekiel, and the water begins to flow, and he goes outside the city gates, kind of watch where this, the water is beginning to flow, and it, it, it barely gets the pavement wet. It, it's, it's just barely doing much at all. But the further he goes, the deeper it gets. And so it goes from being just kind of like a, a damp spot on the, um, on the pavement to, to being up to his ankles, then up to his knees, to then it's a river and then it's a flood that fills the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We're only 2,000 years in. And the rivers reached Colorado, a very strange place. And this is what God has established to do. And he does it, again, I want to draw your attention to this. He does it, and in the midst of it, look at verse 9. 
Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. This is another image used by the prophets again and again to describe this exact moment. He says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so here is the most precious, glorious, almost unbelievable promise imaginable. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as higher than all the mountains. And and here, here is a people crying aloud. Here are people groaning, completely unaware of what God is actually doing. Um, I heard this illustration this week and thought it was a helpful one. Um, We call giving birth labor. Like you, a woman goes in to labor and we pray and we, and the other side of that is a baby and it's wonderful and glorious and everyone celebrates. I always know that when a man begins to talk about labor, um, he's treading on very thin ice. But just go with me for a minute. Um, imagine with me for a moment, like if... If you went into labor, but you had no idea that this is where babies come from. Like, just indescribable, I can't even imagine it, really, literally can't imagine it. Pain, waves of pain. Like, you wouldn't in that moment think, something really good is happening. Like, you wouldn't, if you didn't know babies or on the other side of that deal, joy is on the other side of that thing, all the wonders and cuteness and all of that stuff. If all you had was like, oh, I'm walking around and suddenly labor pains. Right now in the middle of Cherry Creek Mall shopping for Christmas gifts. Which, never mind. Like, nothing in you goes, glory, this is good. Yes, wonderful moment. Like, you, you, if you were aware of anything at all other than just sheer pain, you would think something's really, really wrong. And it just keeps getting worse and wet and weird. It's just it's painful and it hurts and it's bad. I'm getting a, 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 a turn away sign for my wife. Like, in other words, whatever is happening right now is like you're not thinking in this moment, this is a good thing. This is really good. Like, pain makes the soul stronger. Like, you're not thinking any of that. It's just bad. Really, really, really bad. But, but right in the middle of it, you, you, it's hard to even imagine that, that right here in what is one of the most painful things a person can go through, um, right on the other side of it is one of the most joyful things imaginable. And it is through that pain, through that labor, um, that, that, that the joy is actually coming. In fact, you can't get to that joy without that pain. God says that is precisely what he's doing. There's trouble. There's groaning. Pain has seized you like a woman in labor. There is writhing and there is groaning. But there 
you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So I want to look at a handful of theological observations about this chapter then draw our attention to one particular point of application. And it will be done until tonight. And tonight we get dragons. So first, um, this whole thing, the coming of Jesus, it is about the transformation in history of all the nations of the earth. The claim of the Christian gospel um, is not uh, uh, the, the Christian religion. So if you're here and you're a visitor, um, I don't know what you think Christianity is. Um, I, I want to disabuse you of a false understanding or perception about what Christianity is. Christianity is not about pie in the sky when you die. Christianity is not about um, some sort of uh, kind of elevating peace that kind of lifts you above the mundane, that lifts you above the pain of this life, that lifts you above some of the glories of this life so that you kind of, kind of drift off into some heavenly reality someday. No, Christianity is a claim about history. It's a claim about something that God has done in the midst of the world that we celebrate on Christmas Day. That Jesus Christ was born. That the ineffable glory and majesty and beauty and wisdom and righteousness and holiness of God has dwelt among us. The implications of that will just, you can just go on forever considering that. But what you need to know is God has not set up a redemptive system where you get to go off and be away from all of this physicality and away from all of this messiness and away from all of the dirt and the stuff that, that, that we think corrupts this life, but rather that God has acted decisively in the sending of Jesus to redeem all of it. All of the relational messiness, all of the dirt and the work and the mud and the, the, the muck um, to redeem every single bit of it, to glorify it. The heart of redemption is about the establishment not of a people who escape this world, but rather the establishment of a mountain, a house, that, that through which God rules all the nations of the earth, through which God redeems and rescues a people from every corner of this earth. It was a reclaiming project. God lays claim on all of it. Christianity is not simply a set of timeless principles whereby we escape or elevate above this dirty, messy world. It was not to get you away from the blood or the muck or the pain or the chaos or the checks mix. It was to redeem and rescue all of it. Second, this is about the establishment, the coming of Jesus. It is not, um, not only very, very earthly, it's not only very, very historical, it is about establishing the kingdom of God such that eventually the end goal, again, we're only 2,000 years into this thing, the end goal is the world is flooded with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea such that everything here will be filled up with the glory, the beauty, the knowledge of God. And it happens slowly. God's timing isn't ours. It's established in Bethlehem. 
in the humblest of circumstances. But now it goes and it works and it changes everything. And everything is made new. We are in the latter days. A whole new age has dawned. Now for this last observation. I think it's really at the heart of this whole thing and the heart of how do we then live in the light of it. I want to read for you again verses 11 through 13. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Here is the nations gathered against God's people, which happens, by the way, again and again and again and again throughout history. This isn't just a one-time event. It's actually um, one of God's favorite strategies, and it just always works. Like the devil always falls for it. It's like Lucy with the football. What does he do? Oh, maybe you guys have a chance right now. The nations come. They say, we're going to wipe out those Christians. We're going to destroy Christianity from the earth. We're going to destroy Israel. We're going to destroy the church. We're going to destroy those stupid evangelicals. And we're going to get rid of this thing once and for all. And so they gather together to stand against the people of God, to stand against the word of God. And right then, God says, look, I've got them all together for you now. Break them. Now, it's really, really important that you see the parallel in verses 11 through 13 to what's happening in verse 2. That breaking is not the people of God taking up arms and fighting, using knives and swords um, and, and killing the nations and conquering the nations that way. No, um, with the par- looking over at verse two, the means by which those nations are overcome, the means by which that paganism is overcome, the means by which that secularism is undone, the means by which the nations come under the rulership of the Lord is not through some sort of fleshly conquering. It is through the, the heralding unashamed, unembarrassed of the word of the Lord. The fight of God's people in this moment and every moment since the coming of Jesus has been to hold fast to and to unashamedly proclaim and sing and pray and counsel the words of God, all of them. And in the face of what appears to be certain destruction, in the face of what feels like a babyless labor, in the midst of what feels like nothing but pain and destruction and darkness, the people of God hold fast to the promises of God. They hold fast to the trustworthiness of every single word that God has said, particularly the ones that are most embarrassing at this particular cultural moment, holding fast to all of those words, and that becomes a stream that floods the nations. Oh, don't be like a woman who's giving labor and has no idea where babies come from. Oh, but trust in the sovereignty of God and the means that God has appointed, namely his words. And hold fast to his words and hold fast to his words with hope.
This is true for the nations, but it's also true for you and for me. Trouble will come. Difficulty is there. Pain, labor-like pain will come. But hold fast to every word that has proceeded from the mouth of God. Hold fast to the good news that Christ has borne our sins on the cross. Hold fast that God holds none of your sins against you. Hold fast to the glory of God redeeming for himself a people. Hold fast to his morality, his ethics, his law. Hold fast to every single one of his precious promises. Because it is precisely through the pain, through the darkness, through the apparent chaos that God is birthing the glory of his name and the establishment of his rule and his reign and his grace and his mercy and his glory. Let's pray and prepare for communion.